talk about girding up your mind. Girding up your mind. 1 Peter 1.13. By the way, it's, it's where the seed of everything positive and negative spiritually emanates from starts right here. It has to start here. There's no Hitler if people weren't being educated wrong here. You see what I'm saying? There's no um, lack of appreciation for human life if a concept of evolution didn't begin in someone's mind here. Um, there's no throwing God away and focusing on me as God if the humanism doesn't begin right here. There's no being able to be gracious and kind to someone if it doesn't begin here. You know, There's no loyalty to a spouse if it doesn't begin right here. So we could go on and on and on with that. But let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. Peter says to Christians, Jewish Christians that were spread abroad, but even earlier in the passage uh, to the Gentiles, which is us today, uh, he says, Wherefore, because of what I've spoken about in the first 12 verses, and, and this passage is really dealing, the first chapter through most of the second chapter of Peter is really dealing with how our conduct ought to be as a Christian. And he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That's the first thing. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we've come to you this morning in prayer. We're coming back again and we're asking, Lord, that you take the words I say, that they'll find a place to rest in our hearts as we read your word. Lord, that you would be honored and glorified. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know heaven as their home, um, they're not saved today. They couldn't claim salvation. They're not sure about their relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict their heart and let them come to that knowledge today. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would uh, help us, Father, to understand and comprehend that our spirits would resonate with you as we go through your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. There's another passage that always strikes me in and, uh, and you, we hear people sometimes say something along the lines of, uh, stand up and be a man, you know, that kind of thing. There's a passage in Job where Job, and he had, he had lost everything. You know, I got to give him kudos. He, he did more than I would have ever done in his situation. I probably would have folded and, and done what his wife suggested and cursed God and died in that situation. But he lost everything. He lost all of his finances. He lost his his children all died, and the only one left, the only thing left, not his home, not his property, not his possessions, not his children, the only, in a matter, by the way, of minutes, this happened. Like he's getting messages. The Bible says in the first part of Job, he, a runner comes and gives him bad news, and as soon as he gets that bad news, another one shows up and gives him bad news, and as soon as that one, then another one comes in and gives him bad He has bad news coming from everywhere in a matter of minutes. Not a week, not over a period of days, but in a matter of minutes, he loses everything he had. And the Bible says that there was no one like him with his finances. There was no one that had what he had. He was wealthy. He loved the Lord. All these kind of things. And all of a sudden, he loses everything. And the Bible says he fell on his face and he worshiped God. 
Now, we talked about this before, that a lot of times God will nudge us back to fellowship with himself. I pray to goodness that mine never has to be at that magnitude. And I don't think that that magnitude was, was due to Job's life. The Bible says there wasn't a man that followed God better than him at that point in time. But it, nevertheless, it happened. Loss. We've talked about how God's favor, we've talked about on Sunday nights, we've talked about on Sunday nights, how God's favor is upon his children. Job was his child. And yet, in the midst of the favor, he loses everything. Why? Because God doesn't, God does not measure our happiness or our fulfillment based on material possessions. Why? Because material possessions mean nothing to him. They didn't mean anything to him when he was here on earth in his human form as Jesus. What means something to him, and this is the thing we need to pause and really think about, is us. If you're saved today, and if you're lost, when you were lost, he came and he died for you, but if you're saved today, you mean something to him. Nothing else. You think about that. What matters to us most often is externals. You can see it at its worst when family members pass away. And when people are being belligerent over estates and money and whatever else. That's when it shows up in human, human jealousy and envy and greed. and It starts seeping out. And that's not even what matters in life, is it? Relationship matters. Our homes reflect Christ. Those matter. And... Job, when he called Job, and, and, and these things happened, the Bible says he fell on his face and worshipped him. Why? Because he didn't have anywhere else to go. Have you, ever, have you ever had so much hurt that you just, you just felt like collapsing? We call that depression. A lot of times people will just fold up and they retreat into a shell and you never see, from, see them again. But it's, in Job's case, he's like, he's saying, I'm going to worship God. He didn't retreat. He just said, I'm worshiping God. I don't know what else to do. He's like, God, this is, you've got to help me here. I'm about to die. It's overwhelming. And so then you go through the whole book, 40-something chapters, man, of just a bunch of belligerent friends trying to tell him it's because of his own sin and uh, back-and-forth conversations, and it gets really deep. It gets really heavy. And then at the very end of it, Job is sitting there, and he makes this comment. He says, I just wish I'd never been born. I wish I'd never been here. It'd be better for me had I never been born. He didn't curse God like his, like his unfaithful wife told him to do. He didn't curse God. He didn't raise his fist at God. He didn't blame God. In fact, he worshipped him. He just said, this is so overwhelming, I would rather have never existed than to suffer this pain. And not to quote, it's a wonderful life by, with Jimmy Stewart and those kind of things with Clarence coming down. But God shows up, in a, the Bible says, in a whirlwind, he speaks to him. And it's funny, you know, you would think that him sitting there completely bummed out, saying, I wish I'd never been born, it'd be better if I weren't alive. That God, you know, our response would be to come along somebody and try to encourage them and say, hey, it's okay, hey. No, this world needs you. Hey, and we speak these affirming words, right? That's what we do. 
God shows up and he made this comment. He said, hey, he showed up first of all and show his power. And then he said, gird up your loins now like a man. He just lost everything he had. And God's telling him to stand up like a man. What does he mean by that? Well, in those days, we've talked about this, you, you, they wore robes, right? And so they had the sash around their waist, and when it was time to go to war, time to farm, time to work, try, time to do something athletic, they would take that sash and they would throw it under that robe and they would pull it up and they would tie it off and it formed like pants so they could be active. And what God was telling Job was, hey, quit sitting down, get active. Here, stand up. I got some things I want to ask you. And then he goes through rhetorical questions with Job, which he's not expecting an answer. He's asking Job questions to make a point. And I've talked about this in here a couple of times. But when he gets up there, he starts saying things like we would say to our kids, if your kid's not obeying you or not doing what they should do or whatever, and and they make a comment in the house, you're like, who do you think pays the bills around here? Look, everybody in the house knows that answer, right? The kid's not going to sit there and say, I don't know, Dad, I just... Let me think about it. Maybe it's our neighbor. They already know the answer. Who do you think puts the roof over it? Who do you think provides the food? Who do, you think, that's not, who do you think does this? So God starts hitting Job with a bunch of questions. Were you there when I hung the world in space? Were you there when I put the frozen water pre- the, in, the, in the north and the south of the poles? Were you there when I created this and when I created were you, were you the one that made pathways in the seas, that put the jet stream, the, the currents the, in the sea? Were you the one that provided the seasons? Were you the one that created these dinosaurs? Were you the one? And he goes on and on and on with this, and he was not... He was not so much correcting Job. He was saying to Job, trust me. Because if I see God as who He is, then I understand who I am. And I'll get my eyes off of the physical nature and my situation and my loss around me, and I'll have faith in God that He has my best at heart. And you may say, I don't understand how he has my best at heart when I'm going through and fill in the blank. Everybody in here has something different you've gone through. And you could sit there and you could fill in the blank. Somebody treats me this way. Somebody does this. Or I don't have this. Or this is my family life. And this is what happened with my parents. Or this is my home. Or this is where I'm at right now. Or this is what happened with my child. And how, do, how can God allow that to happen? And God's saying, hey, gird up your loins now like a man. You need to understand who I am, and you need to understand that you are in my favor, and you need to understand that I have a plan for you. You need to trust my plan. And so you have that concept of girding up your loins, right? Of, of getting, sit, pay attention, focus not on that, focus on what I'm telling you is what God is saying. And God tells us through Peter in verse 13, Wherefore, because we understand what God has done, because we understand salvation, gird up the loins of your mind. Well, what is the opposite side of that coin? If I have to gird, if I have to be told by God to gird up the loins of my mind, then what is the opposite of that coin? That means it's very, very possible for my mind to be sitting around, not focused on what it needs to be focused on. And he says, and right on the heels of that, he said, I want you to pay attention, and he says this, be sober. 
He's not talking about don't go get drunk right now. You shouldn't do that either. The Bible talks about that too. But in this particular passage, when he says be sober, he's talking about be focused with your mind. Have a purpose. Don't, have you ever met people sometimes, and, and have you ever, I always say that, I should say, have we ever been this way? Because we always like to project to these negative things on other people. Oh yeah, I've seen that kind of person. When in reality, we need to say, hey, have we ever been this way? Have you ever been just, you can't take, you can't really focus on the things that matter spiritually because you're so consumed. I'm not even talking about frivolity. I'm not talking about somebody that's just always a joker, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking sometimes we are easy to say, oh yeah, that's people that don't take things serious enough. And yet we become so serious about things that don't matter. You know what I'm saying? We become absolutely wrapped up with the things that don't matter and Peter is saying through the inspiration of God, you need to be sober about what matters. You need to have your mind concentrated on the thing. You need to be focused and understand what is important spiritually. And then he says this, so when you're girding up the ones of your mind, you need to be sober in your mind. And then he said, hope to the end, which I love this right here, for the grace that is to be brought unto you. Not hope that the grace of God will reach me one day. No, the, the grace of God is coming. The Bible says grace is given to his children on an as-needed basis. That's my summation or paraphrase. But that's the general point of the verse. You will receive grace as needed. And you may say, preacher, I have been in situations where I needed the grace of God and I was so overwhelmed with hurt, all I could do is cry out and I did not feel that grace. I promise you, the grace was there, or you would have been unbearable even more than what you went through. And see, that's what we don't look at. We always look at how bad it is, not how bad it would have been without him, because it's impossible for us to know how bad it would have been. And he, the grace of God is coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your hope, the hope, the whole idea of the word hope here is not, hey, let's hope that it happens. Oh, let's hope that I can maintain my salvation for that day to happen. That's not what it's saying. What is it saying? It's saying, hey, you need to remember to have hope because in the midst of this world's trial, hope gets thin. Why? Because we don't think about what's coming. What do I know is coming? What did, what did Asaph say? I always go back to Psalm 73. Asaph said, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then, under, then I understood what was going to happen to this lost world. The hope is that in the middle of my trial, when the world makes it seem like things are hopeless, I need to step back and remember that hope and hang on to it because there is a day coming when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to reappear in this world. Now, he's here today in the Spirit of God that indwells every believer in this room today. His presence is on earth in the Spirit of God. The day you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God took up residence inside of you. That being said, Jesus in flesh is coming back. Jesus said that where I go, I will return, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back to get you. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians that there's going to be a trump, and at the trump of God, it, it, that that the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and we which are alive and remain in Thessalonians are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. 
Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to reestablish his reign. Jesus is going to be, is, and is going to be visibly seen. He is currently is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So the revelation of Jesus Christ is what is being said by Peter to us, and this is something we need to understand. And on the heels of that, as a, the next thing, first of all, we need to have a sober mind. Second, we need to be obedient children. The opposite of being obedient is being disobedient. <laughs> Can Christians be disobedient? Absolutely, every day of our lives. We disobey God. We can disobey God. Think about this. He says, as obedient children, and what is the opposite of being obedient? Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. Wow, that's pretty heavy words, isn't it? So what's the implication there? What's it saying? That before you got saved, you were ignorant. You were spiritually ignorant. The Bible says in Romans 1 that there's a generation of people that are unsaved that profess themselves to be wise, yet they are fools. Book knowledge, academic knowledge, mean nothing spiritually. I mean, zero spiritually. The only book that increases spiritual wisdom is the book that you have in today in our Bible that we read. That's it. we got a lot of people today, a lot of Christians today, and, and I, look, I love reading. I'm a huge fan of reading. I love reading books. And I love reading good authors and good Christian authors. But when I take more, when I get more out of what a human writes than I get out of the Word of God, man, I've got things totally out of focus. Because what a human writes is, is just human sin that's being, that a man's writing. It means nothing. And it's not going to increase my knowledge like the Word of God will. The Bible never says, hey, meditate upon the words of a man day and night. Never says that. Love. Love the words of man. Love it stored inside you. And you're going to grow strong. The Bible never says that. It says, love the law of the Lord. Meditate upon the law of the Lord. Seek the law of the Lord. That's being obedient. And when we are obedient, we will not fashion ourselves. I think it's interesting that it does that. According to your ignorance, your lost ignorance from before you got saved, when we were spiritually ignorant, there are Christians today, you are molding yourself if you're not walking with Christ and in His Word and obeying Him, we are molding ourselves, we are forming ourselves, we are creating ourselves in our own lust based on the ignorance of our lost life. How sad would that be? When God has given us, any man being Christ, He is a what? A new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. How sad is that for us to want to go back to the old things? Can you imagine having some pristine work of art that you are now in the hands of God and your desire is to throw that away and become a lump of clay based off your old carnal flesh that you form yourself? 
That's the equivalent of what we as Christians do when we are disobedient to Him and we live in our former lust, in our former life, in our former lost living. When we return to that, in the way we live, we are simply wadding up and throwing away the being obedient to God and reflecting His image by taking on what we want with our hands. And He's saying in the Scripture, as obedient children, so be obedient to Him by being sober-minded, by hoping, knowing that God, Jesus is returning, being girding up our minds. And then he says this, Be, and as he which hath called you, in verse 15, is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. For it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Think about this. God, you may, we sit here, and I will tell you all the time, when you get saved, when Peter got saved, when the disciples got saved, Jesus knew when he called them and when they were saved that they would not, that he knew where they would mess up, right? And we'll say all the time that our, we're not, God doesn't expect you to live a sinless life in your human nature because that day is coming. But how many times do we just say, well, we're going to use that that little check mark and say, well, the Lord knows I'm not perfect, so I'm just going to go ahead and be an idiot. And the Bible says, be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. I saved you. Be me. Replicate me. Our, our heart's desire ought to be to reflect Him. And it's not a matter of, of us never sinning. It's a matter of us getting it right as soon as we do and we know it. The problem is when we sin, and we don't get it right. Because Satan wants you to give up. Satan wants you to give up on your spiritual growth the way we give up on diets. You do pretty good, and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm going to eat this. And then that leads to something else, and that leads to something else, and that leads to something else, and then you've got to start all over again later. And, and so then what do we do? Some people just quit, right? Here's the thing. When we look at that kind of concept spiritually, that's what Satan wants in us. Well, my mind is not under submission. And by the way, when he says, be holy in all manner of conversation, you only talk about what's already being processed out of your mind. Right? It's like the way a motor works. You put fuel in, fuel is used to drive the pistons, right? You have to have the fuel to burn, to drive. but what happens after that? The waste has to go somewhere, that's called exhaust, right? And that's the way we are. Your mind is the engine that generates this. But what goes into the mind is the fuel, and there's only two ways in your mind, and that's your eyes and your ears. What you allow yourself to listen to and what you allow yourself to see. Whether it's words or on the printed page, or whether it is a show, or what, what, whatever it may be. What you allow your eyes to set upon, and what you allow your ears to listen on, provides the fuel that the motor of your mind runs And some of us need to clean out our motor. You know what I'm saying? 
And as Christians, the fact that God makes everybody new and we become a new creature, here's the, here's the, the wonderful thing about it. We have the ability now to run on pure fuel. And yet we're going back to the bad stuff. And it's generating a life that is not reflective of Jesus, and it's coming out of us. My mom used to have a saying whenever somebody would eat something or whatever, like especially with garlic, and she was like, that's seeping out your pores. It's like you eat it, and it starts, you start sweating, and you smell like it. I remember one time we were in a, I was in a church softball team, and this guy came in the dugout one day, and he was a functioning alcoholic, if that's such a thing, and had a, had a big job in Nashville, and he came in, and man, he started playing softball, and man, the more he sweat, I thought everybody in that stinking dugout was going to get drunk. It was like a brewery in, brewery in there, and I'm thinking, man, you know, sometimes that's the way our spiritual life is. You're saved, man, you've got the ability to put off a phenomenal incense and aroma for Christ, and sometimes, man, we just stink. <laughs> Spiritually, sometimes we stink. And we've got to take a step back, and we need to do a self-inventory on that. And so we look at this, and it says in verse 17, And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, he says this, If you call on him, and he doesn't respect any of us over anybody else, he judges all of us according to our work and our motive, he says, if we call on him, he says, pass the time. If he's your father, if you're his child, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, that's what my Bible says. That's what my version says. I love this phrase, pass the time of your sojourning. First of all, we know in another passage, the Bible says we are pilgrims and strangers in this land. Our home is heavenly, right? That's where we're headed. That's our eternal kingdom. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ here. So while we're living on this planet, while we're passing the time, right? Our sojourning, I love that, while you're passing time, we're just waiting. Um, we're active, we're actively waiting for his return. What does that imply? If I'm, if I'm a sojourner, what does that tell me? Well, first of all, it tells me that this is not my land. My land is coming. Second of all, it tells me that my focus should not be as much on this land as it is the next. That my spiritual focus, Jesus says, don't lay up treasures for yourself here where moth and dust doth corrupt, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, the ones that will last forever. So we should be living in a constant state of awareness of heaven. That's what he's saying. And since you're his child, since he has saved you, what does he say? He says, pass this time in fear. What does he mean? By healthy respect and reverence and love of God. It's not fear as in, oh, don't strike me. As the kid that said to me one time, I, sometimes I have a picture of God just waiting for me to mess up so he can discipline me. And that's not it at all. We talked about that in here. Parents, good parents, and he's the best parent, good parents don't wake up every morning looking forward to beating their kid. That's not what happens. Like, I hope somebody messes up today so I can discipline them. It's so fun. Take away everything they love in life. That's not what they want to do. 
So God loves you, and if you're his child, if you're his, if he claims you, so live in reverence of that. What? In respect and in awe. Have you ever been grateful to somebody? How grateful would you be to the person that paid off every debt you ever had? Well, you'd do anything they wanted, wouldn't you? You'd be like, man, yeah, I'll come on over and eat. I'll fix you the best dinner ever. You would be so grateful for them. You'd tell all your friends about them. You would mention them. And you would talk about how kind their heart is. And you would talk about, and it would be a, you would, you would speak about them. You would want to communicate with them. You would want to be grateful to them. And yet Christ did more for us than a human could ever do physically. So let's live in fear, in awe, in reverence, in respect of what he's done for us. And that's what Peter is saying. We need to be in all because in why? Because in verses 18 and 19 tells us why. Because for as much as ye know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Your soul was not redeemed by someone physically making a debt payment, but with the precious blood of Christ in verse 19. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He didn't just come and purchase you. He came and gave up all of his blood for you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why? Because he loved you. Had you been the only one, he would have left the eternal glories of heaven and taken off his royal divine robes and put on the, sin, the, the not sinful, but the robes of humanity, and he would have been made a lower than the angels according to Hebrews, and he would have still died for you and shed his blood and poured himself out to pay the sacrifice and take the wrath that you should have taken. And because of that, let's live in awe of Him. Let's live in fear of Him. Let me be obedient because that is the very least I could do. Provide yourselves every day a what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Why? It is your reasonable service. It's the least we can do. Every day. And then how does he close it? Two more things and, and we'll close. He says this. In verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, which is what I was talking about this earlier, he was ordained before the foundation of the world to die for you, but was manifest in these last times for you. Who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned or unfaked love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So, gird up your mind, be sober in your mind, be obedient children, be holy in your speech and in your actions. And then what do we do? Love one another with a pure heart, and love each other fervently. So why do you think he tagged on pure heart? 
And love, even in those days, love could be flippant. Love could be something we just throw around. When you love someone out of a pure heart, you're not expecting anything in return. In fact, anything in return is almost insulting. Because a true love is constantly giving, not receiving. That's true love. True love is not doing anything with expectation. Fervently. And then another result is this right here. I want you to see this. Something to remember. Being born again, we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as, a, is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. Your humanity and my humanity, my, the best I can do, the glory I can bring in, is going to go away. Hey guys, we're 190-something years into this church. All right? There are people whose names we will never know that reached in this community way before we ever got here. And guess what? We don't know their names. There are people that did great works around here and we'll never know who they were way before we ever got here. There are cultures that pre-existed us that had glorious moments in their cultures on this land. There's no memory of individual people within that culture. Very few, if any. What matters and what lasts is what we do for God. And it's in His memory bank. And He doesn't forget it. And He's the one that stores that up. So why do we do what we do? All flesh is as grass. All our glory is as the flower of grass. It withereth and it fadeth, falleth away. But, verse 25, the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. He says, this book, the word I'm giving you now, and it wasn't even completed then, but when Peter was speaking, he's saying, even the very word I'm speaking is the word of God and it will last forever. Guys, this is almost 2,000 years ago. And I'm standing up here reading again to you. This was read in churches 2,000 years ago. And it's the word of the Lord that will last forever. I heard someone say recently that people, Christians, have begun idolizing the Word of God. How is that even possible? When the Bible says Jesus is the Word made flesh, and the Word is Jesus in print, how can I make an idol out of God and His Word? He is God. The Word is what our living, our how we breathe. It's not the Word of man. It's not just man's opinion collectively given as a good idea for us. This is the Word of the living, breathing God. It's a living document. This is a true living document that breathes into generations. This is the seed of truth. This is what gives us our message. This is what we walk in, is this book right here. The Word of God endureth forever. And as a result of that, because of all of that, 
And I'm not going to hit on all of these for a length of time because we're closing. But in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Wherefore, on the heels of all of that, lay aside all malice. What is that? Depravity, malignity, and trouble. Malignity implies a cancer, right? Lay aside all malice. Let's not be the person that walks into a place and spreads a cancer of negativity in that place or of sin or whatever else we bring. Lay aside all malice. Lay aside all guile. Guile is being a decoy, a trick, a bait, a deceit. Quit playing angles is what he's saying. Lay aside malice, lay aside guile, lay aside hypocrisy. That's acting in deceit, faking things on purpose to accomplish a goal. Lay aside malice, guile, hypocrisy, and envy. What is envy? It's it's distracting jealousy. It's different than just being jealous. It's jealous that alters the course of your life. It's one thing to be jealous. It's another thing to be jealous to the point where you start acting differently because of your jealousy. That's envy. And then the final thing in that verse is all evil speakings. Well, that's pretty simple, right? Defamation is one of the words that comes up from evil speaking. Defamation is attacking someone else's character. It doesn't say defamation unless they deserve it. It says defamation. You remember when your mama used to say, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all? And yet sometimes what do we do? We walk around and instead of, instead of just not saying anything, we literally say, well, mama always told me if I don't have anything good to say, I'm not going to say anything at all. Well, what that means is you have a massive opinion. You just gave your opinion. So the Bible says no, no evil speaking. Don't defame other people's character. The second one, the second part of that word, backbiting. The same word we get defamation is the same word. The same word we get evil speaking is the same word we get backbiting. What does that mean? That's that undercurrent of murmuring or sowing discord and discontent amongst a group, bigger group of people. Why? Because you're not getting your way, so I'm going to backbite. That's evil speaking too. What's another evil speaking? Sowing lies. And then it says this. So what's the, what's the other alternative? And this world closes in verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You want to get stronger? You're not going to get stronger outside of this book. You're not going to grow spiritually without this book. You have to be in this book to grow. And that's where it starts. And let me tell you, that's our desire for this church, for all of us, is to get in the word of God and to become stronger than we've ever been in this book.